So Galatians uh, chapter 3, we're in verses uh, 3 through, well, actually not 3 through 5, 6 through 9. We're going to move on a little bit from last week. Uh, Before jumping into it, um, we haven't taken the opportunity to mention why we circle up the chairs. Um, And it may be a good point to say something. We have not circled up the chairs because we just wanted a change of pace for the summer. Um, We want to be very careful of the obstacle of religiosity. We oftentimes get kind of stuck in our own kind of way of doing things. We can kind of hide behind the rows and kind of just make things nice, kind of safe and comfortable for us. And this circling up of the chairs is to make it so that you can't hide. Amen. Right? And it's awkward, I know. Staring across the, the room at the other person who's got their hands up doing this or doing that or whatever, or not. You know, and it's like, what should I be doing? Well, that's a good question to be asking. And you should be asking it not because you're in a room of people, but you're in this room with Jesus. And Jesus is deserving of praise and worship of all kinds. The, The wrong thing to do when Jesus is in the room is hide. The right thing to do is to say, Lord, I'm throwing all I am on that altar again. Make me uncomfortable. If it's raising hands that you want of me, then I'm going to raise my hands. If it's you want me to kneel down, if you want me to go flat, prostrate across the floor, I'm going there. Why? Because there's a battle that goes on every time we walk in the doors, and it's the battle of pride. I want to keep face. I want to keep together. I don't want to be vulnerable. And what this does is it creates vulnerability. You're pressed into it. This is good for us. At some point, we'll switch things up again. You know. But this is good. That's the exercise. We're not just doing it because, oh, this is fun summer. You know, let's just stir things up. We need a change. We don't, I can't stand change for no reason. We change for intentionality. We change for reasons. Right? And that's part of the reason. Let's get outside of our religious comfort zone and kind of like embrace the vulnerability of the moment and being circled up. So that's the aim of it. I hope it's producing something of fruitfulness in your own heart and life, whether it's considering your own posture before the Lord or whether it's looking across and you know the room and saying, ah, isn't it good to see my brother or sister worshiping Jesus? Amen. You know, that's just good stuff. That's just good stuff. He's worthy of it. All right, we got to jump into the text this morning. Galatians chapter 3. Uh, I'm going to read verse 5 through 9, uh, but we'll focus on verse 6. Uh, and just so you know, Paul's not changing up the argument. So if you've been hanging with us the last few weeks, we've talked about that the true gospel, the true Jesus, demands all you are for all he is. That's the unfair exchange of the gospel. He demands all of you, but he gives all of himself. Amen. That's beautiful. Thank you, we, we've, we've said, is that a fair exchange? Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, he gets the bad end of that deal, man. We get the good ends. We get Christ. Right? 
And so he's continuing, don't make me small, Jesus is saying. Don't make me small. Don't come to me as though you can put some of you on the altar. No, I'm comprehensive, Jesus. I demand all that you are so that you might get all that I am. So Paul is is, is, is building on this argument. So verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And now to our point this morning. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the what? Sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. You catch what's going on here? The scriptures preached the gospel of Jesus Christ beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. All the ethnicities, all the shades, colors, cultures, they're going to be blessed in you, Abraham. So then, verse 9, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So once again, over the last few weeks, we've been warned about that all too common drift of the Christian life. Or we called it last week the Christianitis of the soul. It's where we get comfortable in that fishbowl of Christianity and eventually resort to a small supplemental Jesus. Right? We've been warned about either reducing him to make room for ourselves or having to add something to him as if he's not enough for this life. And we've been warned by the fact that if we are resorting to this small Jesus, we actually don't have the real Jesus. Why? Because, again, as we just mentioned, Christ is altogether comprehensive. You can't divvy him up. It's either you get all of him or you get none of him. He is altogether comprehensive and he is altogether consequential. What do I mean by consequential? I mean that he demands every aspect of you. Amen. He's not some little Jesus that we can just, well, here's my Sunday morning, Jesus. I give a little bit to you, and I want a little grace, right, on the side, under the table, you know. No. It's all of you this morning. I hope you come this morning. That's part of the circle. It's the vulnerability. Nothing is withheld. Nothing is defended against when it comes to seeing Jesus eye to eye. Amen. You can't go to the book of Revelation and see the beauty of who he is, his eyes like flames of fire, and say, you know what, you're only deserving of some of me. That's a bad place to be. That's a false Christianity. That's a false gospel. To just give part of ourselves to him. He is altogether comprehensive. He is altogether consequential. So that, even as we come here this morning, all of me, for all of him, we could, we could say with the Apostle Paul, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ in me. That's the exchange of the gospel. 
all of me for all of him. And it's a glorious exchange. So, to this end, just kind of do a little review. Paul has appealed to the experiences of the Christian life. If you'd read back in the verses that we've just covered over the last few weeks, we'd hear about the gift of the Holy Spirit, this experience of conversion that comes to those who trust in Jesus, or the miracle-working spirit that inevitably comes to those who trust in Jesus. Paul has appealed to the power experiences of the Christian life to say, you don't want to move on from this big Jesus. Look at all you've experienced. It. Look what he's done for you. Look at the miracles that he's worked for you. Don't move on from this big, comprehensive Jesus. Paul has appealed to the experiences of the Christian life. He's saying, don't drift, Christian. Return to that simple faith in a big, worthy of it all. Jesus. Now, Paul now gives another line. He's not only appealing to the experience of the Christian life, he's got another line of argument that he's using. And he says, verses 9 through, or 6 through 9, what he does is he appeals to the storyline of Scripture. Right? He appealed to the experiences of the Christian life. Don't drift from that, Jesus. He's amazing. And now he's going to appeal to the storyline of Scripture. In effect, what he is saying, he's saying, let's deal with this Christian drift by returning to the truth of Scripture. Now, before diving into the details of these verses, let's just absorb that immediate kind of application. How we handle Scripture is directly related to how we view Jesus. Catch it? How we handle Scripture is directly related to how we view Jesus. There is a right way to read God's Word. You see, even as was for the case of you know, the Galatians at this time, they didn't drift from this big Jesus because they didn't read the Bible, but rather because of how they read the Bible. If we can realize... Even Jesus, in his earthly life, particularly in his temptations with Satan, what does Satan use in order to tempt Jesus? Scripture. Here's the point. We can read this word to justify our own small Christ Christianity. We can use this word to justify our own small Christ Christianity. Just like the enemy, Satan himself, we can twist scripture. We can use it like a grab bag, right? Where we choose some parts, leave other parts out. But in effect, what do we do when we do that? When we only choose certain things and certain emphases, from this word, what are we actually doing? Well, we're quickly beginning the process then of reducing Scripture down, this storyline of Scripture down. We're reducing it down to something that demands absolutely nothing of me. I can actually use this word with certain emphases, leaving certain things out, minimize that, emphasize this, so I can just be good doing what I want in my Christian walk. See what I'm saying? We can twist scripture. We can use the word itself to keep Christ 
inconsequential. It's like we can use the word as a whittling knife to just reduce Jesus, like a master carver, just reduce Jesus in his comprehensive reality. We can just reduce him down to this little pocket-sized person who has no true demand upon that life. I can say I'm a Christian, I can say I believe in Jesus, but there's no consequences for my life. He's just something I can fit in my pocket. Perhaps another way we can visualize it is as Christians, we can treat the word of God like this. I stand over the word. I determine what it says about me. I determine what it demands of me. I can emphasize the things I want to emphasize, minimize the things I don't want to know, right? Don't want to deal with. I can stand upon the word of God. So really what I make Jesus is just a servant to my sin rather than a Lord who is worthy of my surrender. See? Even Christians defile the word. Standing over it. No, you can't, you can't tell me that. You can't correct me. You can't demand something of me, Jesus. I justify myself. It's a wrong use of the word, and that's why Paul is saying, man, we better get back to the storyline of Scripture. We get better get back to this true word of God. Now i got to find my place So, Paul is calling us back to the storyline of Scripture. He's saying, in effect, don't you dare just kind of dislodge the narrative of Scripture. Don't you stand over it, pick certain things that you want. This is a storyline. you got to take it all. Not pieces, not parts. you got to take it all together. You can't dislodge the narrative of Scripture. You can't treat it like a grab bag. You don't wield it to make Christ inconsequential. No, we take it as the divine story that it is. So Paul's first point is this, if you're writing down notes. His first point is this. Salvation was always to be required or acquired by faith. Salvation was always to be acquired by faith. All right? Verse 6, Paul takes us back to the beginning of the story. Right? He's like, let's get back. Let's really see this narrative at play. He takes us all the way back to Abraham. Now, you may say, well, wasn't Adam before Abraham? Why did he go back to Abraham instead of Adam? Well, from Genesis chapter 1 through 11, we catch that sin ruins Everything, right? Sin just messes up everything. A quick review. Adam and Eve, they, of course, fall, disobey God. Cain then kills his brother. The sons of God cohabitate with the daughters of man, giving way to all kinds of evil and sexual perversion. So that it's even said during that time, the intention of man's heart is evil continually. So then we have the flood come. In effect, God pushes the reset button, if you will, on creation, starts over with Noah and his family, but soon after there's Noah drunk and naked. And through Noah we find a new society is birthed and it leads to what we come to know as the Tower of Babel, the epitome of man's arrogance. Man who 
engineers, builds, and works his way, so to speak, to heaven to say, God, I'm better than you. That's how the first 11 chapters end in Scripture. And then what we see is God comes to Abraham. In the previous chapters, we certainly see God working. He's providing promises along the way to Adam and Eve and so forth. But it's not until chapter 11 that we see God pioneer his redemptive plan. And how does he do it? He does it through an unlikely couple. Abraham and Sarah. Sarah. All right. All right. Through an unlikely couple, a pagan, barren couple. All right. Just just take that in for a second, because if you're on the fence, uh, you know, with God, God loves to work through unlikely broken people. He loves to take the, the darkest midnight sky to highlight the fireworks display of his grace. You and your life, it ain't an impossibility to him. If you feel that impossibility, if you feel the fragility, if you feel the unrelenting darkness, you are a ready canvas for his grace. So what is needed for this saving grace as it relates to Abraham? When we look back at the storyline of Scripture where God began to pioneer his redemptive purposes, Abraham didn't bring anything to the table but impossibility. Catch it? He doesn't bring, hey, 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 Yahweh, you know, I've been following you for a while, so I'm now in kind of thing. No, it didn't work that way. He had nothing to bargain with. All there was for Abraham was all-out surrender, or as the text says, faith. So verse 6, just as Abraham, what? Believed. It was counted to him as righteousness. Paul is saying, just as we experience the power of our salvation by faith alone, so from the very beginning of Scripture itself, the only way sinful man has been made right before a holy God is through simple faith. Abraham believed and God counted him as righteous. It's not about what you do. It's not about what you can bring to the bargaining table, what religious credits you may have in your account, what Letters may stand at the end of your last name, PhD, THM, whatever it is. That stuff doesn't matter. You don't come to the bargaining table. You come to an altar to surrender all you are in faith to all he is. Now, let me just help you at this point. I want to help you from doing the same errors that the Galatians were doing, dislodging the storyline of Scripture and somehow allowing it to reinforce some sort of small Christ Christianity. Faith in Abraham's life was no half-hearted thing. This faith was an all-out death to his previous life. This faith gave God full reign over Abraham's life. Now, do we see Abraham struggle? Was he a perfect dude? Nope. No, no, just, just ask Hagar. 
right? And we got Ishmael, and we got, we got problems now, right? Again and again, what does Abraham do? Well, he, he, he does not exercise perfect faith, but nonetheless, his faith wasn't this intellectual, okay, Yahweh God, I believe in you. No, Yahweh quickly came to uh, Abraham as an idol worshiper, a pagan worshiper that he was, and he says, I demand everything. Are you ready to move? And you have to think of Abraham. He, 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 he's doing all right for himself at this point. He, he's got all kinds of people working for him, and he's moving his whole corporation because he says, I heard from God. He, he's throwing everything on the altar. Not to mention later on when Isaac comes on the scene and God's saying, hey man, let's test that faith of yours. Take him to the mountain. Kill him. It's like, okay, that's insane. Any, anybody else hearing that kind of stuff, like, from God, you're, you're like, okay, take him to the loony bin. Like, lock this person up. He's becoming a, a harm to his own family. Mm -hmm. Abraham's faith was not this easygoing intellectualism of Yahweh. It demanded all that he was. He risked everything that he had, earthly speaking. This was his faith. It was an all-in. Yahweh's got to be worthy of it all. He's got to be worthy of all aspects of my life. Now, if your faith, if your faith is just a Christian cliche, you know, it's just a bumper sticker kind of Christianity, but Jesus doesn't have the right to demand your life, direct your life, put a calling on your life. If he doesn't have a right to correct your life, then you may not, and I'm just going to say it, you may not be saved at all. Ouch. Again, as Christians, we will fall and we'll fail and we'll take our will back at different times, right? But if, if it's just been the consistent way of your walk and view of Christianity that, that oh, he just... He's just an addition to my life. Then you got it wrong. He demands your life. He's not an addition to anything. He's comprehensive Jesus. Right? This is how it has always been, in other words, through the storyline of Scripture. You go all the way back to Abraham. Okay, how did people come to salvation? How did they acquire salvation? Did they bring something into the bargaining table? Did they do a bunch of good things to make God happy with them? No. It was simple faith. God, here's my life. Here's my everything. All of me, for all of you, it's always been by faith alone. Now, second, salvation, secondly, was always to be accomplished through Christ. It, it was always to be acquired by faith, right, just like Abraham. But salvation was always to be accomplished through Christ. Verse 8. We see the story of Scripture has always been centered on the gospel. Now, people use gospel, and it's a term that's stretched out, and, and it loses something of its meaning. Here's what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of salvation. It's the good news victory cry. Now, you think of tabloids. Victory cry. There it is, you know. Victory cry, it's this, there's been a victory that has been won, and this is good news. And so you ask the question, well, what is the victory? Well, the victory is this, at least in promise form, that a Messiah, an anointed one, a Christ figure, would come 
and make right what man has made wrong. All those first 10, 11 chapters of Genesis where man just totally messes up, totally messes up, totally messes up, totally messes up, right? Everything is wrong. Well, the promise of the Messiah, the gospel message, the good news of victory is that there is one who's coming to make right everything that man has made wrong. So it's the view that Christ, the gospel is the fact that Christ would come and reconcile our relationship with God. He would, if we could say it this way, reverse Adam's curse. So that's the gospel. There's somebody coming in the storyline. There's somebody coming. He's coming. He's going to make right this mess that we've made. So then verse 8. It's interesting how, how, how Paul states this. He says, And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify, save, make right before himself, the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, by faith, he preached the what? The gospel. The gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Just a quick note. Paul is referring to Scripture as like this living, breathing entity. This living, breathing document. Right? As he says, Scripture foresaw that God would save just by non-Jewish people. And it's simply to say that the storyline of Scripture anticipated God's sovereign activity in that God would make a way even for Gentiles, non-Jews, to be saved, to be made right with God. And, and as Scripture anticipated that, it then preached what? The gospel. Paul is saying, yep, Scripture's anticipated this. The storyline of Scripture has anticipated what God would do, and it has faithfully preached this gospel. Scripture, this living, breathing document anticipated salvation for non-Jews and therefore preached the gospel. It's incredible the way he's saying it. It's just unique. Now, certainly to refer to Scripture as this living, breathing document uh, isn't to just like, oh, this is such a mystical book. Look out, right? It's, 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 it's a thing in itself. You know? that, that's not the idea. It's simply to say that this word is living and active. It is God-breathed. This is a narrative. This is a storyline not conjured up kind of in the minds of men, but it's been forged in the fires of divine sovereignty. God has authored this story. He has breathed these words. He is animating the story with meticulous care and eternal Intention. God is pioneering the saving purposes that he has for his people. So again, you can't just pick and choose what you want from the storyline. God is superintending this. He's been preaching Christ, as it were, since the beginning. He's never changed the plan. It's always been the same. It's always been that God would provide a redeemer. God would provide a gospel. It's always been this gospel good news. And the gospel then was proclaimed to Abraham, verse 8. Abraham, in you all nations shall be blessed. In you, that is, Abraham, in your lineage through, remember, your barren state, through your impotence, through your inability, through your impossibility, 
all nations, all ethnicities, all shades, colors, cultures of people would one day be blessed. And what do we then see as the storyline of Scripture moves forward? Right? It, we could say that it's this seed form of the gospel proclaimed to Abraham that takes on more shape and contour over the generations. In other words, we get more revelation, more specificity to this gospel. Such that by the end of the Old Testament, when Christ finally dawns onto the scene of human history... There are some 300 plus Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in him. From where Christ would be born, to who he'd be born to, to how he'd be born, to how he'd lead his ministry, to how he'd love and serve others, to how he'd perform miracles, to how he would ride into Jerusalem in his final days, to how he would then be betrayed, to then how many pieces of silver he'd be betrayed for. To how he'd be put to death. To how long he would remain dead. To how he would swallow up death. And how he would then become, again, as it was stated to Abraham, a blessing to every nation. From Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the world. Christ has always been God's main plan. He has always been the promised one, right? So the blessing of Christ, aren't we the result of this, has gone global. Look around the room. There's all kinds of different ethnicities, Amen. right? Colors, shades, cultures represented even in this room. Guess what has happened? The fulfillment to Abraham, that gospel message we now see in reality. Christ has become a blessing to the world. But to the point then, again, if that's the case of Scripture, if salvation is only acquired by faith, and if salvation has always been intended to be accomplished in Christ, I'm just, you have, I have, no right to alter the storyline of Scripture. I have no right to dislodge the narrative, pick out pieces that I like, leave other pieces to the side. This is God's story. He's superintended it. He's breathed it out. He's intended it for his son to become the fulfillment of all those promises. And we live in the glory of that gospel. We live in the effect of that gospel as it's been fulfilled and as there are more aspects of it to be fulfilled. We don't give up. We don't piecemeal this storyline of scripture. We don't use it to justify our own kind of small Christ Christianity. This narrative of scripture, again, it shows us a God who is worthy of it all. All of me for all of him. It's always been the plan. It's always been his purpose. Now, finally... I want to end with one particular emphasis from the text. There's actually so many wonderful um, applications to just these few verses. That there would be application in relationship to racial diversity and how it's the gospel who brings harmony. 
We could go there, but this past week was just a strange, it was like every book I picked up, everything, you know, I'll, I'll watch a number of sermons on YouTube throughout every week, pick up different either lectures or interviews, and it was like every, everything I picked up had to do with the Father's love. And that's part of the emphasis here, particularly as we see it in verse 7. Salvation, remember, has always been acquired by faith alone. You don't, you don't come to a bargaining table. All you bring is your brokenness, trusting in Christ. Salvation has always been intended to be accomplished by Christ, right? But finally, salvation was always to lead to adoption as sons. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the what? Sons of Abraham. I just, just that phrase, the sons of Abraham, that is with a world of meaning. As a pastor, and we race through these verses, it's like, ah, no. There's so much here. There's a world of meaning in that phrase, sons of Abraham, right? You are a son of Abraham if you've trusted in Yahweh God, right? If you've come to that point of surrender, oh man, it's all of me for all of him. If that exchange has happened, you are now sons of Abraham. And actually that idea, sons, that's not to like exclude you ladies. Right? It's children of Abraham. Right? That's the idea. Children of Abraham. This faith alone in Christ alone makes you and me a son, a child of Abraham, which from that Old Testament perspective is simply to say you're in God's family. So we'll see this actually more. Paul's going to expound about on it in chapter 4. He says this in chapter 4, verse 4. You can flip the page and, and read it. Chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive what? Adoption, Adoption as sons. This is family language. This is belonging. right? And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba. So let me just get to the point. There are too many sons and daughters in the church who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Their, their adoption papers have been signed, sealed, and delivered in the cross. Right? But they are living like functional orphans. It's one of the reasons why so many Christians pick and choose parts of the biblical storyline to emphasize. It, it's why they don't even they, they don't care for this language, Abba, Father. It's too vulnerable. It's too close to home. It's too up in the grill, so to speak. 
I didn't, I just, just, like, you guys be good, you know, those, those emotional types, those, like, let's get intimate with Jesus kind of type, that's for them. Don't give me this Abba Father stuff. No, just let me have my controlled Christianity. But in so doing, you're living as an orphan. As adopted children that we are, many still live like orphans. It's again why so many resort to this less than dying to self Christianity. It's why so many men in particular are trying to prove themselves on one hand. And yet keep the love of the father at a distance on the other hand. It's fear. They are afraid. They are hurt. So to think of an all out surrender to their heavenly father. To come to know him as Abba is something that they want to keep at a distance. Because they know, perhaps, in some ways, the hurt that they've experienced from their earthly father. Too many sons and daughters living as orphans in the family of God. Here's, here's kind of the point. You can't come to know the love of the father unless you approach him as a child. Again, unless you bring all you are to all that he is. He doesn't just want the good pieces of your life. He's not impressed by you. Do you know that? In that sense? You know, where we try to prove, here I am. <laughs> here I am, Jesus, put together. You're like, oh, I'm not impressed by you. And anything that you've put together in your life, who gave you the life breath in all things to be put together? Him. He's not impressed. He's like, yeah, I gave you that grace. But Jesus, look at this. Look at that. Oh, ain't I good? Ain't I good? Ain't I good? And he's like, yeah, I get to. Yeah. <clears throat> Fact of the matter is we often come to him with all our put-togetherness. And what we hold off the altar is our brokenness. And you can't come to know the love of the Father if you don't Come as a child with all you are, recognizing I got nothing to defend. My hurt is his. My brokenness is his. For me to try to like take the bandages of those wounds and try to like keep the infection out, so to speak, is worthless. He's the great physician. He's the one who can take the cancer of forgiveness out of you. He's the one who can make you whole again. And he makes you whole not just by giving you the grace of forgiveness, but he makes you whole by showering you with his love. Everything you may not have had in your earthly father is fulfilled in the father of lights. He wants to be all for you. So a lot of times, I just want to say it, why we uh, keep limping in our Christian life, why we just never get really anywhere. And over time, as a church, brothers and sisters begin to see it. Like, hey man, how you doing in your walk with the Lord? 
Oh, good, 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 good. And we never see anything change. We never see growth. We never th see things advance. You were saved, not to stay the way you were, but to move forward, to grow in the love of the Father, to know more and more. Hey, babe, I read this in Scripture, and the Lord says, man, he, he just showered me in his love. you got to know it. i got to encourage you with it. Rather than just staying the same. I'm just limping along. Everything's good. I'm good. And you're not. You're harboring the hurts of this life. Not bringing that on the altar. When you are, you are a son of God. You've been adopted in. Stop keeping a foot out. Get all in. Get all in. Get all in. That's what the Lord is saying. I want your hurts. Don't come to me all make up up. Right? Don't you look great? No. When you're hurting deep on the inside. He wants all of you. And, and to just kind of take that perspective and just turn it a little bit to see another aspect. Whenever you hear the term sons of God or sons of Abraham, that, only, that not only refers to this love that the Father has for you, but it's all about spiritual authority. Spiritual authority. Those who know the love of the Father walk in spiritual authority. Those who heisman the love of the Father, they stay the same. Struggling in their different ways. I wish we could go into another hour talking about the sons of God. The sons of God were back in Genesis chapter 6. They influenced a whole mess of things. They were the divine counsel. They fell. They followed Satan. Things got messy. Things got bad real fast. God has a divine counsel. And guess who now through Christ rules and reigns with God? But the church. We are the new sons of God. We are his restored divine counsel. We are the ones who sit enthroned with Christ. We are the ones who have his full inheritance. So now the enemy has nothing over us Amen. other than what you give him. Amen. So you harbor the hurts. Keep yourself from the love of the Father. What you do, in effect, is actually give way for the enemy to hold you down. I just want to say, Today, the Father wants all of you. He wants all of you. Nothing withheld. All out surrender to all that he is. Will you give him even your hurts? And let me just say, he's a gentleman. God is a gentleman. If we would go back to the story of Hosea, do you know it? So God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute, Gomer. And they evidently live for a while in marriage, but she becomes unfaithful again. She's back to the streets, right? And she's back to her slavery, to her bondage. And uh, the Lord comes to Hosea and says, go buy your wife. 
buy her off the auction block of her slavery. And so what does he do? Heartbroken and all. He goes to the auction block and bids for his wife. Buys her off the auction block. Amazing grace. But then the text says, he takes her home and he is gentle with her. All the brokenness, all the bruises, all the abuse, all the terror, he doesn't just take us home. Let's get back to living. He doesn't throw expectations on us that are not right for the moment. Right? He's gentle. My wife needs healing. So he's gentle with her. Folks, he's a gentleman. God is not one who just wants to be a, you know, a bowl in the china closet of your sufferings. He's gentle. He's careful. He's got, if you will, tender hands. The carpenter has tender hands. Right? Not all calloused up, but it's tender. He wants to hold your heart. He wants to piece things together. He wants to bring healing to where there is hurt. The Father wants all. So let's pray, even this morning, uh, to that particular end. Lord, we come now and we trust that you are with us. You are with us in your fatherly care even right now. Your tenderness, your gentleness is being offered to us right now. Thank you, Father, that you're not in the business of just kind of playing some bargaining game with us, but you do want everything. The hurt, the tears, the disappointments, the grief, the abuse, the feelings of being dirty and not belonging, the feelings of being just not one that adds up in the eyes of my earthly father. Father, thank you that with all of that, you want to bring your grace to bear. You want to bring your smile to bear upon our lives. You want to bring your healing touch to bear. You want to affirm us in your love. Where we are so insecure, you bring us into the security of your love. So even now, Lord Jesus, we pray that you... Uh, would come in power by your spirit to shed abroad the love of the Father upon our hearts. But Jesus, just as you, as you were baptized, 
It was the love of the Father spoken of, over you and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit that was granted to you. There was power. There was authority. So even now, Lord, I pray that you would grant us the grace of surrender to bring all we are to all that you are in your gentleness, your tenderness, your carefulness. That we would know that in Christ we add up. That we would know that in Christ we are a new creation. That in Christ, shame cannot stay. That in Christ, all that is broken will be made whole. You're a big father, Jesus. You're a big Jesus. Worthy, 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 worthy of it all. So we ask even now, Lord, do this work in us. Bring us into the freedom of your love, we pray. Jesus. I don't exactly know how to respond to that, but I just that's a that's a call to surrender and that's a call to respond. So
just want to read the words of Ephesians chapter 1, where Paul writes, In love, God has predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. To himself, as sons and daughters, through Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Lord, I pray that you would bless us again today with that, Lord. Lord, we need the encouragement daily. We need the surrender daily. We need the blessing daily. In you we have redemption through the blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins that we might be the sons and daughters of the King, that all-encompassing, all-consuming, glorious, holy God, Lord Most High. May he keep you today. May he bless you today. May he make his face shine upon you. In Jesus' name, you're dismissed. But if you need prayer, please come receive that prayer. All right? Amen. Amen.